0: Today's special episode is by Kira Morgan. When Kira was five, her grandmother gave her a book about England's queens, which started a lifelong fascination. She went on to complete her B.A. in History and English and an M.A. in History at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. She spent the next few decades working in a number of professions, all while writing historical fiction. Now a retiree, she is pursuing her writing dream full-time. Since 2019, she's published three articles in local expat newsletters and a short story in an anthology. While searching for an agent for her first novel, she is writing a second, also set in Renaissance France. She also writes nonfiction biographies for her website, Kira Morgan, Renaissance Fiction Writer, which she plans to collect in a book about women of the French Renaissance. Today, she delivers a series in three parts about four powerful noble women and their impact upon France during its transition from the medieval period to the Renaissance. Please enjoy.
1: Kira Morgan. In these podcasts, I will talk about events that occurred during the period that France's cultural and political systems were transforming from medieval to the Renaissance. The change was rapid because in 1494, King Charles rode off to war in Italy and became entranced by all things Italian. These Italian wars continued sporadically for the next 60 years. Because of them, large numbers of men from the highest nobility went away, leaving women in charge. The change began a short time earlier in 1483. You probably know that in France only males could inherit the throne, as a result of what was called the Salic Law. There were only three times in which women were allowed to rule for men, if the king were under age, under fourteen by French law, if or when the king was out of the country, or if the king were so incapacitated he was incapable of ruling in these cases his mother could be appointed to rule as regent with a regency council to guide her it wasn't required but it was permitted but during the period between 1483 and 1529 four women two of whom became regents of france played a huge political role in french affairs they also had important cultural and literary roles which i will not address in this talk the four women are princess anne de france also known as madame legrand Archduchess Marguerite of Austria, Louise de France, and Duchess Anne de Bretagne. Today I will only talk about 1483 and 84 because they set the scene for the first crisis that came to a head in 1491. It led to the great enmity between the Habsburgs and the Valois. This enmity resulted in the marriages between the Habsburgs and the Spanish royal family and the territorial encirclement of France. So let's get into the story. The key player during these two years is the elder daughter of King Louis XI of France and his favorite child, twenty two year old Anne, whom I shall refer to as Madame la Grande. Healthy and well formed, with dark eyes and hair, she was an excellent rider who loved to hunt. But she was equally at ease in the council chamber. Intelligent and remarkably well educated for the time, she intimidated her father's male courtiers with her cool and rational mind and strategic thinking. She was just like her father, they said, and it wasn't a compliment. They meant she wasn't properly feminine. But her father was pleased and called her the least foolish woman in France, for there are none who are wise. Fortunately for Anne, she was married to an easygoing man, the 47-year-old Duke Pierre de Beaujeu, who recognized her superior intelligence and didn't mind her bossiness. By 1483, King Louis XI, known as the Spider King because he entrapped his enemies in his web and absorbed their lands, had been king for 22 years and was in poor health. He had many enemies, especially those foreign and French princes and nobles whose land he had engulfed. It wasn't just that he took their land, but that he used underhanded techniques like bribery, infiltration, lawsuits, and advantageous agreements to do so. During his reign, he added Picardy, Provence, the three great duchies of Anjou, Berry, and Burgundy, and the small territories of Roussillon and Sardin to France. In short, under his rule, France became the most powerful and unified state in Europe. At the beginning of the year, taking advantage of the rebellion against widowed Duke Maximilian of Austria in the Netherlands, Duke Louis negotiated another advantageous treaty. Under duress, the Duke agreed to dower his three-year-old daughter, Duchess Marguerite of Austria, with the Franche-Comté and Artois, to betroth her to King Louis's only son, 13-year-old Dauphin Charles, and to send her to France to grow up. King Louis also insisted that she come without any personal possessions or household, except one nurse. He intended to make a Frenchwoman of her. While King Louis's demand was unusual because Archduchess Marguerite was so young, both girls and boys did leave their parental homes young to live at other royal or noble courts. There they would learn social or military skills and meet eligible potential spouses. Boys usually left younger than girls at seven or eight. Girls often stayed at home until they were 12 or 14. Archduchess Marguerite is the second noblewoman who will play an important role in French affairs. At three, she was an attractive child with blonde hair and blue eyes, although she already had the heavy chin and jaw inherited from her Habsburg forebears. In France, she was offered an excellent education and developed her musical abilities and artistic tastes. Even as a child she had a lively sense of humor and a strong sense of loyalty and justice. Admired for her kindness and diplomacy, as an adult she welcomed scholars, writers, and artists to her court. That May, King Louis gave Madame la Grande her first important official role. He sent her with Dauphin Charles to meet the toddler Marguerite on the northeast border between France and the Burgundian Netherlands. Since the child would have to leave her household behind, Madame La Grande brought with her the high-born noblewoman Madame de Segrès, who would become the young Dauphine Marguerite's gouvernante. Happily for Marguerite, she and Madame Segret formed a close bond as the cortège made its progress through France. The royal party travelled ceremoniously, stopping in Paris to give the new Dauphine a grand entrée before continuing to Amboise, where she would live. They arrived in the Château d'Amboise on June 22nd. Marguerite and Dauphin Charles celebrated their betrothal immediately. Directly after the betrothal, accompanied by their French and Netherlander witnesses, the children were married in the palace chapel. A papal dispensation was required to allow them to marry, since they were closely related, being doubly cousins. On her Savoyard side, Marguerite's great-aunt was married to Charles's great-aunt. As well, on her Bourbon side, her mother was Duke Pierre de Beaujeu's sister. This is without going any further back into their genealogies. These kinds of entwined lines of descent were common. At the highest royal ranks, the level of interrelatedness is mind-boggling. Trying to draw family trees is an exercise in ingenuity, as brothers' children married sisters' children on both sides of a family. It isn't surprising, therefore, that male lines weakened and failed in several royal families during this century, as we will see. The reasons for intermarriage are not hard to find. Families were large, and parents wanted to keep lands and wealth within family control. As an example, between these two families in one generation, the parents on the Bourbon side had twelve children, of whom ten reached adulthood and six married. Of the six marriages, children of four played significant roles in the events I am about to discuss. On the Savoyal side, the parents had nineteen children. Twelve lived till adulthood, and ten married. In their case, only five played a role during these events. I will spare you the ins and outs of these convoluted relationships, and who married whom. Just keep in mind that most of the people were related, closely related. They often knew each other, and had spent some part of their youth growing up together, either in their own home, or in the noble or royal court in which they lived, as a page, squire, lady or maiden-waiting. They married into this same class, probably to one of their close cousins, uncle, or aunts. Although the Dauphin Charles and Dauphine Marguerite were now married, they were too young to live together as man or wife. Madame La Grande and her husband, Duke Pierre, who had been living in King Louis's court, moved to Amboise, where they expanded their own court. Madame La Grande, in particular, wanted to expand their court to increase royal influence over the nobility. She invited wives, sisters, and daughters of her and her husband's high-born extended family to join her. Her mother was still living in one wing of the chateau. The Dauphin and his household lived in another with his gouverneur and companion. Marguerite, too, was given her own luxurious household in a separate wing of the palace. In July, the third woman, who will become important to France, joined Madame Lagrande's court at Amboise. Her widowed uncle, her Savoy mother's brother, got in touch with his niece. Pleading that he was unable to bring up his two motherless children, he begged her to take them into her household. Madame Lagrande knew her duty and accepted the charge. Thus arrived seven-year-old Louise. Although first cousin to Marguerite of Austria, now the Dauphine, Louise had a very different experience at her aunt's court. Though she received an excellent education for the times, she soon learned that as a high-born but poor relation, Madame Lagrande regarded her as little more than a pawn. As the years went by, grey-eyed Louise, with her light brown hair, grew into a lovely tall girl. Always quick-witted, she learned how to present herself with humility, hide her thoughts and feelings, and use her charm to influence. Quiet and observant, she hid her passionate nature and took advantage of every opportunity that came her way. She developed her literary, musical, and dancing skills, and courtly accomplishments such as card-playing, conversation, and horse-riding. And by watching Madame Legrand, she grew up politically astute. She also grew to resent her poverty and became avaricious. And she grew to dislike the cold and distant Madame Legrand. Then, on August thirtieth, 1483, the event that everyone had been expecting occurred. King Louis XI died in his palace a few leagues down the Loire River. He left behind his underage son, Charles, as king. Since Charles was not yet 14, a regency would be required. King Louis also knew that his son wasn't capable of ruling without strong guidance and support. A few months before his death, he'd made his son swear to retain his father's advisers, and Louis expected the regency to extend well beyond when the king turned fourteen. Duke Pierre and Madame la Grande were among the first to be informed that King Louis had died on his deathbed. In an unprecedented act, King Louis had named them guardians for the Dauphin Charles and regents of France. Tradition said that either the boy's mother or the first prince of the blood were the ones who should be appointed to this honor. Louis XI had nothing but quite undeserved contempt for his wife Queen Charlotte. The first Prince of the Blood, the prince who would be next in line to inherit the throne if the king died without an heir, was Duke Louis d'Orleans. King Louis XI had compelled Duke Louis to marry Louis XI's disabled and sterile second daughter, Princess Jeanne de France. Not surprisingly, Duke Louis loathed King Louis as a result he also detested his unlucky wife, whom he treated despicably. Therefore, the late king would probably have rather named a cobra to the regency than this son-in-law, Louis. King Louis XI had left Madame la Grande with a serious problem. In addition to taking the lands of many of his great nobles during his reign, he had also reduced the power of the feudal nobles as a class to limit his military reliance on them he began to develop a standing army he forbade them to call upon their nobles for their private wars and revoked their right to mint their own coinage he shrank their numbers in his royal councils and surrounded himself with advisers of humble origin whom he rewarded with wealth and power and he sent spies into their homes, bribed their vassals to rebel, and warred outright with others. He was still using these tactics to undermine Duke François II in Brittany, the richest and largest independent duchy. When he died, Duke Louis did not take calmly to the insult of the appointment of his sister-in-law, Madame La Grande, rather than himself, to the regency. Enraged, he arrived promptly at Amboise from Blois, leaving behind the despised Chen confronted his sister and brother-in-law, and put forward his claims to the position. Madame la Grande practiced the delaying and distracting talents she had learned so well from her father. First, nothing could be done until after King Louis's funeral. Then, the Pateleman needed to rule on the king's mother's right to the regency. Next, the king's mother became seriously ill and died. Then Madame Legrand said it was necessary to call a meeting of the Estates General to decide the matter. The meeting took place in January and finally finished in March. As she delayed, Madame Lagrange played a clever game, distributing honours and positions to key nobles teetering in their loyalties. She also planned the young Duke's coronation for after the meeting. Duke Louis, on the other hand, when not agitating among the nobles to rebel, spent time at Amboise with his young brother and sister-in-law, trying to persuade Charles to ask the estates to name him regent. At the meeting of the estates, the results of the vote were conclusive. The Beaujeu regency was confirmed. Two months later, on May 30th, King Charles VIII was crowned at Reims. The disgruntled Duke Louis returned to Blois. There he contemplated his grievances and became more and more disaffected. Louis was convinced that he was not the only disaffected nobleman. Taking a few loyal retainers, he saddled up and set off for Brittany. Soon he arrived in Nantes, his uncle's capital. Duke François the Second of Brittany welcomed him eagerly. He was quite prepared to face Madame Lagrange and France, Brittany's traditional enemy. Duke Louis proposed that if his uncle agreed, he would divorce his detested wife, Jeanne now that her father was dead, and married the Duke's seven-year-old heir, Anne of Brittany. When Duke Francois approved, Duke Louis sent a request to the Pope asking that his marriage be dissolved on the grounds of his lack of consent, and for a dispensation to marry young Anne, since they were related within the forbidden degrees. As soon as Madame Lagarande discovered this plot, she sent a counter-demand to the Pope, insisting that he refuse the request for an annulment. This became just another log on the fire of resentment between Louis and his in laws, Madame la Grande and King Charles, and it strengthened the alliance between the d'Orleans and Brittany. Within this alliance, we meet the last woman who will play a major role in the direction of French affairs over the next thirty years. Anne of Brittany, though only seven in fourteen eighty four, will show her strength of character by fourteen eighty eight. Between fourteen eighty five and fourteen ninety one, Madame la Grande faced the greatest challenge of her regency, the struggle over Brittany's existence as an independent duchy, and the power of the feudal nobility, both of which played out principally in Brittany. She proved she was as capable as her father in advancing the royal interests. As I leave you in 1484, let me summarize the situation. Duke Maximilian of Austria has been forced to release his only daughter Marguerite and two rich provinces to the French and he is resentful of these losses. Young Marguerite herself is living at the Château d'Amboise, where she is being brought up as a Frenchwoman and as Queen of France. Young Louise de Savoy is also growing up at the Château d'Amboise, but as a poor relation. She is taking advantage of the lessons in language, music and dance, horse riding, and anything else that is offered while becoming steadily more envious of the luxuries she sees around her but cannot afford. Young King Charles is practicing to become a perfect gentle knight with the companions his father and older brother-in-law have provided for him. He is passionate about all things military. The only literature he likes are romantic tales of heroes doing great deeds of courage to save damsels of pristine purity whom he worships from afar. His sister, as regent, invites him to council meetings, but he shows little interest. And Madame la Grande runs his kingdom, preparing for the confrontation with Duke Louis d'Orléans and Duke Francois of Brittany that is coming. Hello, everyone. I'm back for part two of the story of the four royal women who played a big role in 16th century France. This time I'll cover from 1487 to 1515. Lots happened. France conquered Brittany. King Charles began the French-Italian Wars. Madame Legrand set the stage for a Bourbon disaster. The jilted Habsburgs married the Spanish royal family. And Archduchess Marguerite found her destiny. So let's begin. In 1487, Madame la Grande was still regent for her younger brother, King Charles. She remained unchallenged as the most powerful person in the country because she ruled with a light hand. The war with the feudal nobles had been going on intermittently for three years, and Madame la Grande had already defeated several of the Duke of Brittany and the Duke of Orleans' allies. Her most strategic conquest so far had been the Count d'Angoulême. Cousin to Duke Louis d'Orléans, he was the second prince of the blood, and next in line to the throne after Duke Louis, until the king produced an heir. Since Queen Marguerite was only seven, it would be some time until that occurred. Like her eleven-year-old cousin, lovely Louise de Savoie, they were both growing up at the Chateau d'Amboise under Madame Legrand's formal guardianship but Marguerite was treated as a rich queen and Louise as a poor relation. Louise, ashamed of her penury and diminished status, disguised her envy, her avarice, and her dislike of Madame Lagrande behind a sweet smile. The defeated Count d'Angoulême languished in prison while Madame Lagrande mopped up that year's campaign. Because of his closeness to the throne, she then returned her attention to him. At twenty-nine, he was still unmarried although he had a mistress and three daughters back at his home. No matter, to ensure his loyalty, Madame Lagrande made a deal. To regain his lands and freedom, he must marry her equally high-born niece, eleven-year-old Louise de Savoie. He complied. Their marriage took place in Paris in February 1488. Avaricious Louise was not pleased to marry a poor noble, although she knew better than to complain, Although the count was closely related to the king, like many nobles, he had little disposable income. Moreover, when Louise arrived at Cognac, she found his mistress ensconced as Chatelaine, a humiliating experience for which she blamed her aunt. Fortunately, the mistress took Louise under her wing, taught her what she needed to know, and treated her as the lady of the house. Louise was also spared cohabitation until she was fifteen but her resentment towards her aunt grew. In Brittany, the war with France intensified now that Madame Legrand had defeated the enemies at her back. On July 28th, the French and Breton armies met in a decisive battle and the Breton army was destroyed. To Madame Lagrand's pleasure, her nemesis, Duke Louis d'Orléans, was captured and returned to France and imprisoned. He remained in prison for the next three years. The humiliated Breton duke accepted vassalage to the King of France. Then, unable to bear the dishonor, he fell from his horse, mortally injured himself, and died on September ninth. He left his 11-year-old daughter to cope with the disastrous situation. With his death, Duchess Anne of Brittany began her decisive role in French affairs. She faced a Brittany in shambles. Madame La Grande, as ruthless as her father, wanted to ignore the treaty terms. Continue the campaign and defeat the few remaining Breton strongholds. She reckoned without her brother King Charles or the Parlement de Paris, who would not agree, so the treaty stood. In this breathing space, young Duchess Anne discovered that her guardians intended her to marry a man of their choice and rule in her stead. Duchess Anne detested the man, Sieur Alain d'Albret. Besides, she intended to rule Brittany herself, so she refused and by January 1489, Brittany had fallen into civil war. As the situation worsened, Duchess Anne accepted she must marry someone, since Brittany was bankrupt and without an army. She accepted Duke Maximilian of Austria, who promised men and money, and married him by proxy in December 1490. And yes, this is the same Duke Maximilian, who was Queen Marguerite's father. When the rejected Sieur Alain d'Albret learned of the marriage, he was enraged. He made a secret trip to Madame Lagrande's court and made a deal. This Judas would betray his Breton allies for silver. Since treachery was a lot less chancy than battle, Madame Lagrande accepted. When the campaign season opened, Sieur d'Albret kept his promise. On a prearranged night, his men opened the gates to Nantes, The city, and soon the whole south of Brittany, fell to the French. By late August, the French army had surrounded Duchess Anne's single remaining stronghold. King Charles offered to let Anne go to her husband, though France would have then conquered the whole of Brittany, as Anne knew. She had married Maximilian only because he had promised to defend Brittany. He had failed. She refused to leave. Her duchy was her passion. Never, she said, would she abandon her people. Consultations dragged on. It was now October. To Madame Lagrange, arriving to end the dawdling, the situation was painful but simple. Incorporating Brittany into the French domain had always been the objective. Therefore, Charles must marry Duchess Anne. Only two obstacles stood in the way, Duchess Anne's marriage to Maximilian and King Charles's marriage to his daughter Marguerite. To Madame Lagrange, these were not obstacles but inconveniences. Since neither marriage had been consummated, they weren't valid and could be annulled. She carried the day. Bowing to her people's pleas, Duchess Anne agreed to marry King Charles. Under the terms of the treaty, she could no longer govern nor call herself Duchess of Brittany, and as a pious Catholic, she blamed Madame Grande for the necessity to break her vows. King Charles was equally distressed and betrothed Duchess Anne reluctantly. When he told 11-year-old Queen Marguerite that he must marry the Duchess, Marguerite was heartbroken and furious. She had been Queen of France ever since she could remember. Marguerite's trust in Madame Legrand was destroyed. The regent had now sacrificed all three young girls, Marguerite, Louise, and Anne, for political reasons, and all three bore her a grudge. In December 1491, Anne and Charles married in a very private wedding at the Château de Lange in France. When Maximilian, the other jilted spouse in this unpleasant affair, learned of the marriage, he cried foul, far and wide, and insisted it was a double adultery. The dispensations did not arrive until February 1492. By then, Anne was now Queen Anne of France, and already pregnant, and had been crowned at Saint-Denis. Although Queen Anne fell under the spell of her charming husband, from the start she distrusted Madame Lagrande. This isn't surprising. Both were strong and stubborn. Queen Anne had ruled her duchy during the war and did only surrender to avoid its further destruction. Yet her new husband insisted that she accept instruction from his elder sister. Madame Lagrande organized her wedding, selected her ladies-in-waiting, and oversaw her health during her pregnancy. Queen Anne did not take well to any of this. But to her great delight, in October she gave birth to her first child, a boy. All France celebrated the Dauphin's arrival with her. And then Madame Legrand retired to her domains. For when King Charles turned 21, just before his marriage, his sister's regency ended, and he began his personal rule. But in the last few years of their regency, Madame Legrand and her husband had been blessed by some remarkable good fortune. First Duke Pierre, quite unexpectedly, became Duke de Bourbon. He acquired the duchies, counties, baronies, seigneuries, and other lands that made up the vast and valuable Bourbon inheritance in central France. Madame Lagrande was now the Duchess de Bourbon Beaujeux. Take note of this inheritance, for it is like the worm in an apple. It became the first plank on a scaffold built on sand that tumbled to pieces in 1523, leading the Bourbon to disaster.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com French FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you.
1: Then, in May 1491, after 15 years of marriage, Madame la Grande and Duc Pierre were blessed with a daughter, Suzanne de Bourbon. Although she was not the longed-for boy, they were thrilled. So, when their long regency ended, leaving the couple at loose ends, they had an heir and their own great duchy to manage. Madame la Grande turned her considerable skills and drive to making Bourbon a modern, well-run place. She became more Bourbon than the Bourbon, as she incorporated her inheritance into the great Bourbon heritage and worked out a way that her daughter could inherit it all. So, Suzanne became the second plank in the unstable feudal structure Madame la was creating in central France. King Charles, now freed from his sister's supervision, set about organizing his great military adventures. This had been his dream since youth. He had now the power to carry them out. By going to war in Italy in 1494, he was instrumental in flooding France with Italian influences and beginning a 60 year period of war. With France's kings so often away on Italian campaigns, they left in charge the only people they really trusted their sisters, wives, or mothers. This helps explain the power of royal women over these years. While the king was away, Countess Louise also bore a son. From the moment he was born, he became the center of her life, and she was convinced he was destined to become king. She resented anyone who stood between him and the crown. In particular, she begrudged Queen Anne, her son, the Dauphin. King Charles finally returned in 1495, after a string of remarkable wins, horrendous losses, and the final Pyrrhic victory at Fornova. He brought back much Italian loot, quantities of Italian artisans, a passion for all things Italian, and the worst scourge since the plague, syphilis. Queen Anne tried to hurry the king back to Amboise to see their son, but didn't succeed. Soon a herald brought them tragic news. The dauphin had died of smallpox. Queen Anne was inconsolable countess louise heard with satisfaction that the dauphin had died as she and her husband journeyed to court on their way the count sickened and within a month he too was dead to louise it meant that her son was now the count and second prince of the blood much less agreeably it also meant that louis d'orleans became the official guardian of her two children a lioness determined to guard her den she fought duke louis until they compromised duke louis retained his official rights Countess Louise kept the children. Two years passed, but King Charles and Queen Anne had no more living children. Then, in April 1498, to the astonishment of all Europe, 28 year old King Charles hit his head on a low lintel, fell unconscious, and died within hours. The political stage within France rocked as if struck by an earthquake. Duke Louis d'Orleans became King of France under the name King Louis XII. To Countess Louise's intense delight, her four-year-old son, Count François d'Angoulême, became heir-presumptive and first prince of the blood, and Dowager Queen Anne was once again Duchess of Brittany, but a Brittany now peaceful, rich, and at peace with France, and she immediately restored its independent institutions. When King Louis XII ascended the throne, he was determined to annul his marriage to his barren wife, Jeanne. To do so, He knew he would need the Bourbon beauches support. They agreed, for a price, and he paid it. They wanted a legal agreement that their daughter Suzanne could inherit those parts of the Bourbon inheritance held in Appanage from the French crown. To clarify, Appanage lands were those that returned to the crown when the male line failed, as had happened in this case. This agreement flew in the face of all tradition and customary law. With this agreement, Madame Legrand added another level to her rickety edifice. As King Louis XII set in motion his divorce, he also decided he must take control of his heir, Count Francois, until he had an heir of his own. Despite Countess Louise's resistance, he insisted on his rights. Furious, she gave way, as she must, although she hid her feelings as she had learned so well to do. Then King Louis infuriated Countess Louise once again. Just two weeks after the king divorced Jeanne, he married Duchess Anne of Brittany, making her Queen of France a second time. This made her the richest, most powerful woman in France. She controlled the wealth of her duchy, her widow's dower as previous Queen of France, and the income from the land settled on her as present queen. Moreover, King Louis not only admired and respected her, he loved her. She was active in French political affairs. As queen, she did her best to persuade the king to abandon his Italian wars, but without success. And when he and Pope Julius II found themselves at loggerheads, she kept Brittany out of it and sent ambassadors to Rome to mediate, although once again without success. Within weeks of their marriage, she was pregnant. Imagine Louise's relief when the child turned out to be a girl. Although Anne had many pregnancies, she had only one more living child, another daughter. To Countess Louise's relief, none of her sons lived. The Countess's evident satisfaction caused Queen Anne to loathe her with all the intensity of her direct nature. The feeling was mutual. Their daughter became the source of the most important conflict between the king and queen. The reason is simple the princess would inherit brittany and queen anne was determined to keep brittany independent from france it had been her goal since childhood and this brings us back to archduchess marguerite and her father maximilian after the unforgivable french double jilting of the hapsburgs in 1491 both held deep grudges against the french maximilian wanted good marriages for his son duke philip of burgundy And his daughter Archduchess Marguerite. The Spanish royal family wanted allies. They offered their Crown Prince Juan for Marguerite and Princess Juana for Duke Philip. Both marriages occurred. Juana and Philip had six children, but only one is important here. Charles, born in 1500, is known to history as Emperor Charles V. After a series of deaths, his parents became King and Queen of Castile. Then his father died unexpectedly, and young Charles became Duke of Burgundy in 1506. Poor Archduchess Marguerite continued her matrimonial woes. She married Prince Juan of Spain. Within a year, she was a widow, and within two, she was back in Burgundy and Netherlands. A year later, her father, Maximilian, married her again, this time to the Duke of Savoy. Just to remind you of the complexities of interrelationships here, This Duc de Savoie was Countess Louise's younger brother. Yes, indeed, the couple were first cousins. Louise always made the most of useful relationships. From then on, she kept in touch with the Archduchess by letter. Happily for Marguerite, the Duke adored her and had no interest in ruling. This suited Marguerite perfectly. She ran the Duchy of Savoie, proving herself an excellent administrator and diplomat. But three short years later, One day, when the duke went out hunting as usual, he caught a terrible cold and died of pleurisy. For Marguerite, that was it. She was done with marriage. When her father tried to marry her again, she absolutely refused. And fate had another role in store for her. When her brother and sister-in-law went to Spain, she became guardian for those of their children left in Burgundy and became the very competent regent of the Burgundian Netherlands for most of the period from 1507 to 1530. She is a key player in the next chapter of this story. Back in France, once King Louis accepted that Francois would be the next French king, he insisted that his daughter betrothed Count Francois d'Angoulême. Both Queen Anne and Countess Louise, who loathed each other and had other matches in mind for their children, protested, but he was adamant the marriage would ensure that his daughter, as next Duchess of Brittany, would keep the duchy within France. Meanwhile, Madame la Grande's husband was growing old. Duke Pierre de bourbon Beaujeu died, leaving his vast inheritance and titles to his twelve-year-old daughter Suzanne. Because Louis XII was still king, no one contested her inheritance, and Madame la Grande avoided arguments with the Bourbon by betrothing suzanne to the closest male heir count charles de montpensier they married two years later and became known as duke charles and duchess suzanne de bourbon montpensier but by opening the door to inheritance in the female line madame la grande added new weight to her tottering scaffold in the best traditions of tragedy she sowed the seeds of her bourbon family's destruction I will conclude with the situation for each of the four women as we come to the final events that lead to the turning point in 1515. In January 1514, Queen Anne, Duchess of Brittany, died. Though her duchy brought great wealth to France, her marriage created an unhealable rift between the Habsburg and the Falois. Just one year later, on January 1, 1515, King Louis XII died too. Louise, now Duchess d'Angouleme, couldn't have been happier when her beloved son came to the throne as King Francois I. In fifteen fifteen, too, Duke Charles of Burgundy reached his majority and left for Castile to take up his Spanish inheritance. He would name his aunt Marguerite as regent of the Netherlands. By 1515, Madame la Grande had created a great semi-independent feudal territory in the middle of France and married her daughter exactly as she wished. But the death of King Louis would usher in problems, for she had lost her ally. Regent Marguerite and Duchess Louise, two women whom Madame la Grande treated badly in their youth, now held positions of power. By 1516, France would be completely surrounded by Habsburg lands, and worse what yet to come. Everything is falling into place for the showdown that will soon erupt among the Valois, Bourbon, and Habsburgs. I will end the series next time with that whole topic. Hello again. I'm back to wrap up the story of these royal women. This time I will cover the ten-year period from 1519 to 1529 when France went from being the great power in Europe to decidedly second place. I'll start by bringing you up to date. Anne, Queen of France and Duchess of Brittany, had died after an eventful career, but the jilting of Maximilian, now the Emperor, had created a permanent rift with the Habsburgs. Since Archduchess Marguerite Habsburg, the second key royal woman, was also jilted, the insulted Habsburgs married the Spanish royal family. By 1516, because of these marriages, Marguerite's nephew Charles became the first king of a united Spain. He was also king of Sicily and Naples and the Duke of the Netherlands, and he confirmed his aunt as regent of the Netherlands. The third royal woman, Countess Louise d'Angoulême, had become Queen Mother in 1515, when her son, King François de Valois, had ascended the French throne. He immediately made her Duchess d'Angoulême and one of his most important counsellors. The last important royal lady, Madame la Grande, lost her protector when King Louis XII died. At first it didn't seem serious. King Francois named her adored son in law, Duke Charles de Bourbon Montpensier, as Constable of France. Then the king went to war in Italy to reconquer Milan. The rich, handsome Bourbon duke performed brilliantly, but he outshone Francois. It was a mistake, for the vain king was displeased. Then, as the duke flaunted his wealth and Francois squandered his, their relationship deteriorated. Several concurrent events occurred that intensified the tensions among the Valois, the Habsburg, and the Bourbon. In England, the cautious Henry VII had died. Flamboyant young King Henry VIII sat on the throne, and his wily and ambitious chancellor, Cardinal Wolsey, ruled. When François won back Milan, twenty-eight-year-old King Henry became jealous, and his Spanish wife, Catherine, was one of Regent Marguerite's former sisters-in-law. And they were still good friends. Dissatisfaction with the laxity within the Catholic Church had led Luther's Protestant heresy to spread like wildfire throughout Northern Europe. Pope Clement was increasingly distressed about Luther's attack on the Church, especially the practice of indulgences. The increasing power of the Ottoman Empire was threatening European trade. Suleiman the Magnificent had ascended the throne in 1512 when he was 18. His navy was scouring the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and even Italy itself. As the century progressed, his armies advanced to the gates of Vienna. By early 1519, the situation was volatile. An uneasy peace reigned among England, France, the Habsburgs, and the Papacy. But Pope Clement pressured them to unite in a crusade against the Ottomans, and France was reluctant. Extremely concerned about Spain's expanding conquests in the Americas. The stage is set. Over the next ten years, events passed through four stages. The rivalry between France and the Habsburgs worsened. King Charles V exploited the tension between the Valois and the Bourbons within France. After King Francois' defeat to Emperor Charles, Duchess Louise saved France. And finally, Regent Marguerite and Duchess Louise resolved the resulting mess. Let's get into it. On the 12th of January, 1519, Emperor Maximilian died. His death disrupted the fragile balance in Europe. King Charles immediately added Austria and the title of Duke to his vast existing territory. And the title and wealth of the Holy Roman Empire opened for competition. It was an elective title but had been held by Germans for centuries. Nevertheless, the three rival European monarchs threw their crowns into the ring. Charles and Francois were particularly keen, and bribed heavily among the seven electors. Blessed with the Fugger family as their bankers, the Habsburgs had deeper pockets, and the Valois had no comparable resource. Charles won, and is known to history as Emperor Charles V. Francois could hardly contain himself, he was so furious. King Francois had hoped to ally with King Henry, and they planned to meet, but the splendid two week field of cloth of gold held outside Calais in June is still famous today for its ostentation and lack of results. Instead, both before and after, King Henry and Emperor Charles met quietly and more successfully. By the time their envoys' discussions concluded, they had agreed to war against France. Cardinal Wolsey and Regent Marguerite signed the Treaty of Bruges in 1521, by which Charles promised to finance a war and betrothed Henry's daughter Mary, while Henry promised to attack France by 1523. As the Lutheran heresy strengthened, Pope Leo X excommunicated Luther. To bring resolution and restore orthodoxy to his lands, The Emperor agreed to preside at the Diet of Worms from January until May 1521. Luther went to defend his position in April, but refused to recant anything, and Charles declared him an outlaw of the Empire. Meanwhile, in revenge for his loss of the imperial election, while Emperor Charles was preoccupied, King François quietly funded military excursions against Charles's territories in Navarre, Gelderland, and Italy. This was France's cheapest solution, for France's economic situation was dire. Then, in April 1521, Duchess Suzanne de Bourbon died, leaving her entire estate to her husband, Duke Charles de Bourbon-Montpensier. To Duchess Louise and King François, this was an opportunity to solve two problems at once. Their need for a vast source of revenue, and their concern about the danger to France of a large, semi independent feudal state in the center of their country. Madame la had given Duchess Louise a sturdy weapon with which to attack Duchess Suzanne's will, inheritance through the female line. Duchess Louise immediately contested the will, arguing that as a closer relation to Duke Pierre de Bourbon than Duke Charles, she should be next in line to inherit the duchies of Auvergne and the Bourbonnais. Her son was king, so she won. Madame Lagrange's jerry-built structure came tumbling down, and the destructive consequences multiplied. Naturally, the Bourbon supporters and Madame la Grande accused Duchess Louise of greed, of being in love with the duke, and so on, yet it isn't surprising that the politically astute duchess louise decided to undermine the bourbon inheritance charles de bourbon montpensier was as rich and almost as powerful as the king as such he posed a grave danger to the monarchy emperor charles v recognized a golden opportunity in the lawsuit and sent envoys to the duke to encourage his disaffection by offering him leadership of his military restitution of his lands and marriage with the widowed Queen Eleanor of Portugal, if Duke Charles would turn traitor. When the embittered Madame La Grande encouraged him to do so on her deathbed, he plotted treason. France was surrounded by enemies on all sides. English armies attacked France from the northwest through Calais or the Netherlands. Imperial armies attacked in the east through Switzerland or Germany, from the south through Italy, or from the west through Spain the campaigns were usually relatively short but sharp since the imperial armies were usually made up of mercenaries they retreated after their battles so france remained intact if poorer after each then in the spring francois learned of Duke charles de bourbon montpensier's treacherous intentions and war broke out in earnest the duke fled joined the imperial forces and attacked various french cities including Aix-en-Provence and Marseille. Leaving Duchess Louise as regent, King François set off to war. His army secured France and entered northern Italy, recapturing Milan by early 1525. Then he headed for Pavia. There, on February 25, the French fought, lost catastrophically with 15,000 men killed, and King François was captured by the emperor's troops and the king had only himself to blame for the disaster. France could not have been in a worse situation. She was without allies, without troops, surrounded by enemies, and close to bankrupt. Almost the entire top military leadership had died or been imprisoned at Pavia. In this crisis, Regent Louise proved her capacities. To build loyalty and confidence, she gave the best men remaining in France the responsibility to develop the strategic borders. She called the council into session, called the leaders of Parliament to join it, and prepared for negotiations with the emperor. Calling upon the church and the people for prayers and processions, she joined them and urged all to do so. She transported those few troops who had survived back to France and rebuilt the army. And from the beginning she sought alliances and negotiated treaties. She knew everyone's secret weaknesses and how to play them. For example, when Cardinal Wolsey agreed to the Treaty of Bruges in fifteen twenty one, his support had come with a price. He expected imperial support for his papal bid, but Charles reneged not once but twice, supporting first Adrian VI and then Clement VII. Wolsey felt bitter and betrayed. Now the emperor, betrothed to Henry's only child, Mary, broke it off to marry his niece, Princess Isabel of Portugal. The English were deeply insulted, and the victory at Pavia was the final straw. The emperor had alienated Wolsey and England. When Louise's envoys approached Wolsey, he agreed to negotiate a treaty. France was safe from one threat. In the Netherlands, the new religion was spreading rapidly, and unrest erupted into riots in many cities. When Regent Marguerite, whose country relied extensively on English trade, realized which way the British winds were blowing, she knew she must avoid trouble with England. So she and Duchess Louise agreed to a six-month truce, much to Emperor Charles V's annoyance. In Italy, the unpaid Spanish troops made enemies for themselves. Arrogant and unruly, they plundered from their friends. Several Italian states secretly allied with Louise, including Pope Clement, and Emperor Charles's demands were wholly excessive. He wanted revenge for every last insult or injury he felt France had inflicted on the Habsburgs, going back to his great grandfather's loss of the Duchy of Burgundy, and he wanted lots of money. As a final insult, he insisted that King Francois return to Duke Charles de Bourbon Montpensier all of his lands. As a guarantee, Francois must deliver his two eldest sons into captivity to be held as hostage until all the treaty terms had been met. And these are only the highlights. The demands were so enormous, one has to wonder if he really expected France to meet them. As you can imagine, King Francois was outraged. He became adamant. He would never agree to give up French territory or reward a traitor. He was willing to give up all his claims in Italy to resolve the border issues with Netherlands to pay a large ransom to marry Charles's sister, but he would never return Burgundy or the Bourbon lance point final When the Emperor proved equally intransigent, France fell into civil unrest, and King francois suffered from a serious illness. Finally, after pleas from his mother, his counsellors, and his sisters, he decided to sign the treaty, but he swore to his confessor he was under duress and would refuse to carry out its terms. To Duchess Louise, sending her grandsons as hostages was close to unbearable, but she feared that France would fall into civil war otherwise. So, in January 1526, Francois signed the Loathsome Treaty. He returned home in March. He had a country to return to because his mother had saved it for him. He acknowledged her role, kept her in his council, and trusted her completely. Pope Clement absolved King Francois from implementing the treaty, and in May, France and the Pope signed the League of Cognac together. Naturally, war broke out again once the Emperor realized that King Francois would not abide by the treaty. He called him a liar and a cheat, and treated his sons badly but it made no difference. King Francois was free. Emperor Charles had gained nothing. In fact, he was worse off. For in August 1526, on the eastern side of the empire, probably as a result of France's secret embassy to Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottoman Turks attacked Hungary and won, and Austria was endangered. The wars staggered on. A year later, Charles de Bourbon-Montpensier Betrayed by Emperor Charles, and no longer hopeful his lands would be returned, led the disaffected imperial troops on Rome. On May 6, 1527, they attacked the city. Duke Charles probably did not intend this result, and he himself died on the city walls, but his was an inglorious death, and he is remembered in France as a traitor. He paid a great price for Madame Le Grand's great dreams. By now, there was no hope that the emperor in England would be reconciled. King Henry had lost his heart to Anne Boleyn. He wanted a divorce from Charles V's aunt Catherine. Pope Clement, terrified after the sack of Rome, had fallen back under the imperial wing and refused him one. France was Henry's only hope. The French-English alliance was back on and stronger than ever. Regent Marguerite was entirely on Queen Catherine's side, don't ever forget these family ties. But by late 1528, although Regent Marguerite opposed Henry's divorce, she knew she must end the ongoing dispute between England and the Netherlands, for it was ruining her country's trade. Their envoys agreed to a treaty. Then Marguerite's envoys went to Louise in Paris to obtain the French agreement to the treaty. Duchess Louise was becoming ever more distressed about her grandsons, and she and Marguerite first cousins and former sisters-in-law, still kept in touch. So this was the perfect opportunity from Louise's point of view. As the loser at Pavia, France needed resolution more than Charles. Louise suggested to Regent Marguerite's envoy that the two ladies meet to come up with a general peace settlement between France and the Empire. Once Regent Marguerite concluded that this was a serious offer, She wrote to her nephew Charles in January 1529 to propose it. In her letter, Marguerite justified why the two ladies should conduct the negotiations. Her arguments are revealing. First, she talks about dignity. Neither Charles nor Francois could comprise their dignity, she said, but it would be easy and natural for women to concur in an endeavor to ward off the general ruin of Christendom. Let's review this argument. Obviously, Men could not be expected to injure their dignity for something as minor as the ruin of Christendom. Second, to negotiate successfully, it would be necessary on both sides to forgive all offenses and toss into oblivion all the causes of war and everything that had been written concerning them to enter into the idea of peace. For princes, this would require a sacrifice of their precious honor, and this would be impossible. Ladies, however, would be able to submit the gratification of private hatred and revenge to the more noble principle of the welfare of nations. Let's be clear here. Men could not sacrifice their precious honor, desire for revenge or hatred, but women could and should put the welfare of nations first. Third, as sovereigns, Charles and Francois would be swayed by their promises to their allies, but she and Louise while completely devoted to their principles, would be guided by the general good of Europe and the reconciliation of the two great princes. Once again, let us restate this case. It was natural that men must defer to their promises of rewards to individual parties, whereas women would consider the larger goal of reconciliation and the general good. The timing was excellent for such an initiative. Both countries were depleted from the years of continuous warfare. Emperor Charles wanted to turn his attention to the issue that to him was most significant, the growing strength of the Lutheran heresy. Francois wanted his sons back, to leave governing to others, and to focus on the things he enjoyed, building palaces, encouraging the arts, hunting, and dallying with women. His mother was determined to bring her grandsons home, and Marguerite knew every other nation now feared Emperor Charles V, for he had become too powerful. Despite the fears and mistrust of men on both sides, by 1529, negotiators for both parties, driven by the ladies, had a memorandum of agreement on which to base their meeting. Both women were determined to obtain peace despite the obstacles that kept being thrown up. Although their male counselors wanted to bring armed guards or carry concealed weapons, both women warned their men, in diplomatic language, that this would derail the negotiations. They threatened severe punishment if anyone dared to do so. They met in the neutral bishopric of Cambrai and gave city officials the responsibility for ensuring that only legitimate and unarmed persons entered the city. On the morning of the 5th of July, Marguerite entered with her highest councillors and court. Two hours later, Louise arrived with hers. While festivities went on in the city, the two great ladies, whose habitations were united by covered galleries for privacy and convenience, met quietly and gradually hammered out an agreement. By the end of July, they had reconciled their differences. Margaret and Louise attended Vespers in the abbey where they took each other's hands and ratified the treaty. On August 5th, 1529, they attended a celebratory mass at the cathedral. While the terms were more favorable to the empire than to France, neither the Duchy of Burgundy nor that of Bourbon left French hands. France paid an enormous ransom for their royal hostages. The territorial disputes on the Netherlands border were resolved in Marguerite's favor, and France gave up all claims in Italy. It was a perfect treaty. No one was left happy or fully satisfied but the principles agreed to it, and it met its objective of bringing peace, resolving the major issues, and maintaining male honor and dignity, while bringing peace and avoiding general European ruin. So this story ends here. Our remaining ladies, Duchess Louise and Regent Marguerite, have brought peace to Europe for the time being, which is the most one can hope for. And as the 16th century progressed... Many more women played critical roles in France's affairs as the political and religious situation deteriorated. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed these.
0: As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support.